1: and 365-day returns.
2: Few people have experienced a life in hockey as thoroughly as today's guest on the pod. You name it, he's done it. And now with his new venture into hockey writing, you might say his bingo card is completely filled out. On today's show is none other than Dave Poulin, who was able to squeeze me in between panel work and radio work on a busy day in the NHL. On the show, we discuss his transitioned into hockey writing and his process with that, the multiple perspectives he has on the PLD Patrick Line swap, and how legit the Montreal Canadiens really are. It's Dave Poulin on the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast. So many people in sports spend entire careers chasing that one dream job. A very select few have held so many that they run out of room on their LinkedIn pages, and in that group is my guest today. It's the one and only Dave Poulin. Pouli, how are you?
3: I'm Doing great, Justin. Thank you.
2: Uh, not a problem. So uh, I, you know, I'm going through the resume, and that bingo card is filling up, especially with the, the latest gig, and I'm certainly going to get to that. Before I do, I do want to run down the resume, because uh, it's pretty impress- impressive. It's obviously a life in hockey, uh, and it's You know, someone there's tons of ways to pursue uh, a career in sports and it looks like you're hitting on all of them. So let me run down this resume quickly. Parts of 13 seasons in the NHL, nearly half of which spent as captain of the Philadelphia Flyers, head coach of the University of Notre Dame, vice president of hockey operations with the Toronto Maple Leafs, general manager of the Toronto Marlies, TSN hockey, color analyst, desk analyst, radio analyst, and now Toronto star columnist. Have I missed anything here?
3: Uh, There were actually a few ventures outside the game uh, mixed in there. And, you know, if I go back to the start, Justin, there was no plan to this. There was not, you know, kids ask me all the time, even about playing in the NHL. There was there were no plans. There were it wasn't I didn't grow up saying I'm going to play in the NHL. Um, What I did do is I looked after school and I did very well in school and that opened the door for me. As I grew in hockey, particularly through my teens, I was, I was a good player in the MTHL, but I was the smallest player in the league, you know, at a time when you had to be big to play. And I'd, get, I'd be the last guy to make the team, I'd lead the league in scoring, and then the next year they'd say, well, you know, you did it at minor bantam, but you won't be able to do it at the bantam level. And so, you know, I just kept going and got my real break in junior hockey playing for the Dixie Beehives in tier two and I was actually Mm -hmm. in a gap year so I'd finished high school and it was a gap year and and it was the opportunity we had a really good player on our team and he was being recruited by all the U.S. colleges and that triggered me going to Notre Dame And, and that was the break for me that was the ultimate break for me and I went with no thoughts of playing pro once again never drafted and even you know four good years at Notre Dame I was going to work, coming out of college. I had a great job with Procter and Gamble, and I was going to work. And then another twist led me to Europe to play for a club team in Sweden, and that's where the Flyers scouted me and brought me back. You know, I played 16 games in the American League, and and all of a sudden I was in the NHL. And it's a crazy story, Justin. I was called up on April Fool's Day. Okay, when that phone rings on April Fool's Day. You're not really thinking <laughs> <laughs> that it's a general manager, the Philadelphia Flyers, and you're going to the NHL. But I think, you know, the one lesson for me through the whole thing, all the way through all the different challenges, all the different sort of steps I've taken is to keep going and to do what you enjoy doing. And I've always looked for new challenges. And, and not, it's not like I didn't, it wasn't that, okay, I've mastered this challenge, I need a new one. It was that, I enjoy doing different things and you know even with when I played after two years of playing my agent said to me you're going to law school you're going to MBA school you're going to work and I looked at him and I said I'm the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers we just went to the Stanley Cup finals leave me alone I have a job and he said no the average career is 4.2 years you're halfway done (laughs) so so The summer of 85, after going to the finals, for the first time, I spent the entire summer interviewing in Philadelphia. And I interviewed with, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 different, totally different types of companies and big companies, small companies. And I connected with two guys from a big Wall Street firm. And so then I went to work on Wall Street. So for seven years in the summers, first four with a major firm, and got all my licenses and everything and then and then opened up a small broker dealer with these two guys and so we were doing in the late 80s while I was the captain of the flyers we were doing late stage arbitrage mergers and acquisitions in the summer it was this crazy life and I just worked in the summers I did not work in the winters you know I might go to dinner after a game with clients but I did not work in the winters I was adamant about that that separate those two things and so I've always sort of ventured into different areas and but above all the major lesson just keep going and enjoy what you do and you know and right now the beauty of what I do for me is that I really live in six or seven totally different silos and so you know you may see me the most on the leaf panels but I also do you know during a regular season I'll do 32 Montreal games color and then I'll work on Ottawa panels on Winnipeg panels and the color and the panels are totally different jobs, totally different prep. You're working with different people, obviously color you're doing in the buildings. Um, but then, you know, I love doing Gino Reda's show, which is a different type of prep. I'll do sports center, the radio, I really enjoy. And cause that's just a chance to free flow. And, and then, you know, now the writing has popped up and that's a totally different challenge and a different venture so I like the fact that when I get up in the morning I, I likely got a different job than I had the day before.
2: So I want to get to all those silos uh, and touch on them as much as we can as we sort of weave in a hockey discussion as well but I gotta ask as when you're walking into uh, interview situations as the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers what's the reaction from hiring managers and, and the people that you're interviewing for uh, sort of Uh, dive a little deeper into that dynamic because I tell you what, I don't think Austin Matthews is, you know, or John Tavares is stopping into uh, you know, wall street or wherever it is to, to interview in the summers. It's a little different now, I guess, for hockey players, but still that would have been a bit of a jarring experience. You'd think for hiring managers who are suddenly looking across the table at the Philadelphia Flyers captain.
3: Well, it really was. And, and I, I can still remember some of them, you know, almost to the conversational standpoint, I interviewed with a woman who was starting a bank consulting group and the bank deregulation was just starting in 1985. So they were going to be able to venture to different areas. Fascinating. And I, I really, that was the one I came closest to taking before going with the big firm. It was the biggest risk, but it was this really cool, really smart lady. And she kept about every, I don't know, 20 minutes. So she'd stop and she'd say, so you really you're gonna keep playing hockey right like you you're not gonna just do this you you think you're gonna keep playing hockey and, and, she, and she didn't even really get the hockey thing and then you interviewed mm-hmm. with people that were you know basically only interviewing them because they wanted to be a part of the hockey thing and okay. i interviewed or the job i ended up taking on wall street was uh a company called drexel burnham lambert and it was a high profile stock brokerage firm and And they were the originators, Michael Milken of junk bonds. And so they're really high profile and always under the spotlight. And and I interviewed with Tubby Burnham, the founder of the firm. And he looked at me at one point and he said, you know, we're starting to get a lot of bad press here on Wall Street. And you know, we're doing some radical things with this junk bond thing. And he says, what do you think about bad press? And I looked at him, I said, Mr. Burnham, I'm the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. (laughs) I know all about bad press. And he just laughed, he goes, I've never got an answer like that before. So I think it was part of the weave, you know, people are intrigued. I think when they can't separate the player on the ice from the player off the ice, even, even work aside, just from a personality standpoint, when you meet someone off the ice, Justin, you you know, you're sort of intrigued because you know their identity by how they play. Mm -hmm. And is there a correlation off the ice? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't some of the, you know, you know, like, People ask me a lot about a former teammate in Ron Hextall. And I'll say, look, he's the quietest, calmest, most measured person off the ice, um, low voice, great father, great husband. Great. And they look at me like, come on, really? I say, well, there's a separation between the two. And I think it's the same way when you were interested in what other people did from a work standpoint, that's, that's very similar. And, you know, they were intrigued to, to see, but once again, I wasn't a kid who grew up and said, I'm a hundred percent, you know, one-dimensional person, hockey player, and that's all I can do or want to do. Mm-hmm. So,
2: I mean, that's obviously fascinating. I mean, that's such a unique experience for a hockey player to be doing that. And maybe it wasn't all that unique at the time. I mean, I'm sure there wasn't uh, too many of you guys who were knocking on the door on wall street while you're in your playing days, but obviously uh, things are a little bit different, but I think maybe, you know, we see a lot of players transition into a second career, but rarely we see hockey player transition to hockey writer. So I, <laughs> I, I do want to get to that one silo. And that's obviously one that I want to uh, start with because it's your newest challenge. And, and I want to know what, what motivated you to take on hockey writing, to enter the far from glam- glamorous world of hunkering down behind a laptop, considering the use of commas, semicolons, colons, Uh, and producing columns for the Toronto Star? I mean, why take on this challenge?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Sometimes I've asked myself that already, Um, (laughs) but really I haven't. You know, before I did it, a a good friend of mine um, that I'd been involved with looking at some business stuff over the past number of years, um, got involved at 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 the upper levels with the Toronto Star. And he called me one day and he said, yeah, we're looking at changing some things. What do you think about writing? I remember I actually looked at the cell phone and I'm like, what do you mean writing? Like he said, well, what about writing a column? And I said, about what? And he said, well, whatever you want. And I said, you mean like a sports column? He said, no, nah, sometimes or sometimes not just, you know because of just what we've talked about today what they were interested in was my perspective on things yeah. and how, how I might look at something differently. And so we, we chatted at length and, and I hung up and said, ah, that was a really strange phone call, which is the first time I've got a strange phone call about something. And, and, he, and he said, uh, you know, just check back. And so I gave it some thought and I checked back and I said, you have me intrigued. And I said, here's what I'm, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to try writing a handful of columns, just about anything I want to. And, and then I'll see if I can get a feel for it and, and then we'll talk. So I did, and I wrote six columns, and just, and I mean different stuff. One was about um, US Thanksgiving, um, you know, my first US Thanksgiving and what that was like down there and how it was so different. And, you know, I thought it was a perfect holiday and so totally different things. Right. And then I sent them in to him, and he said, okay, this, we really like this. This is a totally different perspective. We really like this. Um, and so I said, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. And, and basically that's what it is. And they've given me freedom to do whatever I'd like to do. And, um, you know, you think about it early in the week. You know, my first week was so busy. I did five games and five nights, but I had the mm-hmm. premise of the column built early and and sit down Saturday morning with with a big coffee and, um, and just finish it off and fine tune it. And, you know, I've made points during the week and, and it's really enjoyable. It is. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's going to be times when I get into writer's block or whatever you know I'm positive there'll be those times but they've been really good at guiding me The, the the publisher's been tremendous and we've had great conversations you know and I have sort of the protocol of how to you know even submit it now and and what they do from an editing standpoint so you know it's a new little adventure it's enjoyable it's fun and it's a challenge and you think about it all It's time. The reason I try and get the idea in early in the week is because within the job, you know, I will be traveling coming up soon and mm-hmm. and you love have moments when you have a free hour or whatever. As long as the genesis for the idea is in place for the week, then I can just develop it as I go. You know, I can jot three notes down on my phone. Um, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and put four notes into my phone that I'll look at them the next morning and say, OK, well, I might have one idea out of there. So something that's fun and, and lets me and, you know. Because in this day and age, Justin, your mind can wander in so many negative directions with everything going on in the world. This kind of takes in the positive direction.
2: Well, not speaking like any expert here, but I think you've got two main things down already, which is to brew the big coffee before you start writing <laughs> and to not ignore the things that pop in your head in the middle of the night and actually write those things down. That has been uh, pretty key for me. Uh, you sort of led me into my next question, which was... Um, i was kind of curious about your story ideation i mean how closely are you working with an editor or does it seem as simple as it was i think with that one column where you were working on a puzzle and you thought haha this is my light bulb moment this is how i'm going to lead into a bigger idea uh about putting together an nhl roster so how is it working with you coming up with ideas uh and then executing
3: them so far it is just me and, um, you know, and, and they've offered to help in any, at any time, any manner, you know, now we're getting into the season. So now we're getting current events. And so, right. you know, I, I may write, you know, a follow-up column in a week or two with a perspective on the trade, uh, of Pierre-Luc Dubois and Patrick Liney, and Jack Roslevick because right. I've been traded and I've been traded, you know, by a very good friend. And that was Bob Clark. And, and it was, you know, it was an interesting story how that went down. So I can tie that into the difference in this trade. And that's what it is. You know, similar to the writing, Justin, when I am watching a game, so I'm doing color with a game with Brian Mudrick. um, And as it develops, something happens on the ice. And my first instinct is, am I going to tell this as a player? Am I going to tell it as a coach? Am I going to give it from the manager's perspective? Or am I going to give it from a fan from a fan perspective, like how am I gonna digest it? And sometimes I meld two of those things and sometimes I just give it individually and sometimes I give you all three of those. Like here's what a player's thinking, but a coach is thinking, are you kidding me right now? And a manager's thinking, I can't have that and I can't put that pressure on the coach to put the player in that situation. So that's the fun part for me. And, and I think that's what the star was interested in was the different perspective. And, and you know even from a business standpoint, You know, I did a lot of the um, business stuff for the Leafs and the Marlies as well. And so, you know, the entire budget went across my desk. Well, somewhere I'll find a story in that because it's very interesting how the CFO of a major corporation like MLSE looks at a hockey budget, you know, which is a small piece of what their empire is. And yet the detail that they would put me through until they knew that I knew (laughs) what all the pieces were. And so... You know, all the different things that make it work um, are enjoyable. And, and I enjoy sharing a perspective that's maybe different from other people's.
2: Every hockey player has other players that maybe came before them or are playing with them right now that inspire them. So does a former hockey player turned hockey writer have a writing inspiration? And if so, who do you like to read Ooh. and who do you model your style around?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm an avid, avid reader and the problem with my reading so far is now there's years of accumulation and at my house at Notre Dame I had a magnificent library and I had it all categorized by subject and author and and I don't have it all put together right now it will be you know as uh in my next place that'll be a featured room in the house will be the library yeah and I have a fancy little stamp that says it's my book and um and full breadth of books, and I'm a. I just had this conversation with my youngest daughter yesterday, who's in education, and she started a a very cool book Instagram, um, and of what she's current reading, and she is a, mm. a really really interesting um, reader who works in different countries. So she's in international education. And she manages programs all over the world, literally, and she's fluent in multiple languages. And so from a reading standpoint, she is a one book devour the book person. I'm a four or five book, depending on my mood. So four or five different genres at the same time. So, mm. you know, when I finish Michelle Obama's book, I wanted to read Barack Obama's book, but then I'm also reading about a complex murder in the Bahamas you know, in the, in the 1940s. And, and that's a true story. But then, you know, I I really like Michael Connelly. I have to read the John Grisham books because I read the very first one, which was actually the second one and then went back and, you know, so read every Grisham book as they came out. And, and it was funny because he was invited to be a speaker at Notre Dame and the person that invited him realized partway through the day that they hadn't read one of his books and I got a panicked phone call about two o'clock in the afternoon because the person knew I was an avid reader and he said you know I've got coffee with John Grisham at four o'clock can you come and I'm like of course I can come (laughs) so to sit down and talk to a writer like that and uh I had some questions for him I pushed him a little bit technically (laughs) just out of (laughs) just out of fun because I had questions on on how he went through the process. So, you know, all the way across the board, I'm interested in reading. I love a well-written book, um, a lot of fiction, but, um, usually almost one of each biographies are great. Um, you know, an interesting business book and it, so whatever's going and, and, but I always try and pull something out of them that correlates to my life or to hockey. Like I can, I can find a hockey story in any book, about some similar situation and that's kind of fun too but I was an avid reader as a kid I grew up in Timmins Justin and I can remember the first novel I read about pro sports was a book called Instant Replay by Jerry Kramer Hmm. and he was the right guard for the Green Bay Packers and he wrote you know, he was a current athlete who wrote that book, Instant Replay, about the great uh, Vince Lombardi Packer teams. And so I was probably eight years old at the time and I remember devouring it and just thought, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world. A football player is writing a book.
2: Well, I don't want to suggest anything that might cramp your daughter's style. But when you get that library going, I think the Dave Poulin Book book Club is a pretty good idea. Just, just <laughs> another be. project. Another project you might be able to consider uh, taking might on. Be. Last question on your uh, your uh, approach to hockey writing. What is the biggest challenge that you're facing uh, as you get going here with, I believe, your five columns in? What is sort of the biggest stumbling block uh, that you're running into uh, in producing these columns?
3: It gets too crowded. I want to put too many thoughts into it, and I've got to pair mm. some stuff out of it. And I'll, what I'll think is pertinent to the column, they'll remind me, really is a column unto itself at some point. And so I'll drop, you know, a nugget in there, um, you know, about the national development program in Ann Arbor, and they'll say, well, that whole development story is a different animal that we can, you know, we can approach at some point. And so I think I get these points down and, you know, you're limited with size of column. At first I thought it would be a problem that I wouldn't be able to get it enough words. And now they're actually asking me to pare it back. And mm-hmm. so, which is a good problem to have, but so you take pieces out and you put them, you know, over to the right on the shelf and say, well, that might be a column unto itself. And, and it's really organizing the thoughts and trimming them down because I'll get excited about something and I want to, I want to say it seven different ways instead of saying it two different ways really well. Exactly. I, I think that's.
2: Uh, that's a problem that I guess every ri- hockey writer or any writer, any sports writer is sort of dealing with. The word count is is definitely something that you have to uh, uh, navigate around, but I'm already seeing some polish in the five columns I've read, and I'm a little jealous of, of that as well. Well, so, thank uh,
3: you. I appreciate let, that.
2: Uh, no problem. Let's. Uh, you mentioned the perspectives uh, that you had and whether you're trying to figure out which way to tackle a certain topic based on your experience as a player, coach, executive, analyst. So, in the wider hockey discussion that I want to have with you, uh, I welcome you to put any any hat you want on to sort of approach uh, the topics that I'm going to throw at you. But I think maybe with looking at the Pierre-Luc Dubois-Patrick Laine swap, it would be best if you put on that 13-year veteran, former captain, player poolie hat on, uh, because there's a couple of interesting things that have fallen out of sort of the, the discussion around that trade, and and how those teams handled those certain situations. Uh, I think one thing that was interesting was Blake Wheeler expressing regret on how he handled Line A and their time together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was during, you know, Tortorella and Dubois clashing at the start of this year. I wondered about Nick Foligno's role. So this is open-ended, and I, I, I want you to take it any direction you want. But could you describe maybe the difficulty of being in a leadership position when there is real turmoil in the ranks, especially involving young players?
3: Well, I was there, you know, I was there with the Flyers when there was significant turmoil. I mean, um, you know, we had a tremendous player in the dear departed, Brad McCrimmon, who, you know, always had, I guess, a brush with management, but it had gone back to the fact that he and Bob Clark had played together and, Mm. you know, may not have been on the same page then. So now the guy that you weren't on the same page with in the locker room is now the general manager and and brad eventually got traded to calgary where he won a stanley cup and i don't think our team was ever the same after it and you know so and i would have conversations with clarky about those things um ron hextall didn't come to training camp uh after his big year so it'd have been 88 he 88 or 89 one of those two years he didn't come to camp and he wanted a new contract he signed a long-term contract and wanted to get out of it and and so then you're in a delicate position. You're you're almost brokering it between the two. You're not playing the role of agent, but you're, I guess, trying to play the role of common sense between, you know, two parties that are involved. I, I was there, you know, in Winnipeg. I covered them in the conference finals. So I was around the team quite a bit. And as well, I did color one year. I think I did about 10 or 12 games for Winnipeg. So I had okay. a pretty good feel for a young Patrick Laine. And... Anybody that's that gifted, their initial rub. So, what would Blake Wheeler be looking at? Blake Wheeler was the fifth overall pick in the draft to Arizona. A lot of people don't realize that, Phoenix at the time, and had a hard road to get to where he was. Played in his first All Star game, I believe, at 31 years old. And so, how do you think he would look at a Patrick Line who steps in and, you know, and then, you know, blows through the NHL five goals in a game or, whatever happens 138 goals in his first four years in the league you know a guy who's 31 in his first all-star game you're looking at it like that's way too easy you know that shouldn't be that easy and 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 so they probably pushed and challenged him to round out his game and, and and he did he was a better player in his fourth year than he was in his first year and i think he's gonna have a monster year now and so it's the understanding you know, and I'll guarantee you, you know, I was a better captain as I became a father, because you understand and appreciate you're more patient. And, you know, all those things come into play. But um, I think they're two different situations. I'm not sure what Patrick Laine, you know, wanted or didn't want with his original thought of getting out of Winnipeg. And maybe it was as simple as I want to be on the stage myself I want to be the number one guy and he wasn't because of Mark Scheifele because of Blake Wheeler hey because Kyle Connor was coming hard but he will be in Columbus if that's what he wished for he will be the number one focal point in Columbus and and he'll get to to now he's better prepared now four years later Justin than he would have been you know when he stepped in for sure he is better and you know from Pierre-Luc Dubois I thought what John Tortorella said the day after that incident, you know, where he benched him, was magnificent from a coach's standpoint. Just, it was so pure. And he said, a coach doesn't go into a game deciding that he's gonna limit a really good player's minutes. Like that's a crazy thought. Torts mm-hmm. is as competitive as he can, he wants to win the game, but he's not gonna let one player take down the structure of what he's put in place in Columbus. And I would love to play for Tort's by the way, I would, have, I would have loved to have played for a coach like that because there were some nights you talk about my role as a captain some nights when you were frustrated, trying to demand it of your teammates. And, you know, you were looking at the coach and wishing he would grab one of the players and we would do it. We did it a lot more. I think in that day, I had a really good group of guys around me. Um, I mentioned Brad McCrimmon, Mark Howe was really good. Brad Marsh was terrific. Murray Craven was really good. Um, And then the young guys, principally Rick Talk and Ron Sutter, you know, we had some.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
3: and and did we we thought nothing of grabbing a guy at all and you know and and i ha, i knew i had the support of my teammates and saying hey and it would be like we need more from you this isn't enough and it's not that you know we don't like you it's not that we're mad at you we need more if we're going to win we need more and i think that was the the messaging and you know we had Yarmo on uh, Yarmo yarmol keklane the general manager after the trade And he got very, very tight when when the question was brought up that it was the contract negotiations that brought this apart. He said, not a chance, not a chance. Mm -hmm. said he had a two-year deal. He didn't have a one-year deal. He had a two-year deal and everything up through an eight-year deal that would have made him the highest paid player in the history of the Columbus Blue Jackets. It was not the contract. He he got literally very defensive and angry when that point was brought up. And uh, so we don't know what it was with Pierre-Luc Dubois. He just wanted maybe a fresh start and by the way you can do that once justin you you can do that once but you can't you can't keep doing that you can't get to winnipeg and say no this doesn't work either you know i I, it doesn't like he he better play well and i think he's a really talented young player but he better play well in winnipeg
2: i guess i guess the question is is that what he wants i think i guess we're going to figure out whether or not uh, this is the greener grass that Pierre-Luc Dubois wanted, right. and, and we're going to find out the same, obviously, with Patrick Line. I, I find it interesting that you said uh, you would have wanted to play with John Tortorella or play for John Tortorella. Uh, kind of leads me into my next question because uh, given that interest, um, when a coach and a captain are working together well congruously, uh, can you explain the nuance to that relationship between those two roles, how it functions when it's working well? Uh, and what it's like when it's not working
0: well?
3: Yes, I can. And, and I was captain for a couple of different coaches and, and one of the more mercurial coaches in the history of the game and Mike Keenan in his first four years in the National Hockey League. And what I grew to learn, Justin, is that my role was to be the liaison at, between the coach and the team, but mm-hmm. that you couldn't be perceived by the team as being too close to the coach, because then you were, you were them and not us. So you had to be the player. You had to stand up at the appropriate times. You had to have your battles with the coach when they were necessary, when you were almost like when you were defending the team. And there were times that I went to Mike and said, that doesn't work. That flat out doesn't work. But I would do it quietly. I would do it one-on-one and, and he was respectful of that we had a complex thing going on there though, Justin, because prior to his retirement, Bob Clark and I had been best friends and roommates. And so now he retires. He's the vice president, general manager. Mike Keenan comes in as the head coach and I'm the captain. So the head coach knows that the general manager and the captain know each other way better than he knows either of them. So picture the dynamic that went on through some of those conversations and, you know, and, and Clark and I continued a unique friendship where we could have lunch or we could play golf or, you know, but and, I can separate and, and sorry, the line.
2: Sorry to interrupt, but the rest of the team also understands that your
3: relationship yes, with it did. Bobby. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And, you know, so you can't be seen from a captain standpoint. we were a really young group. You can't be seen as management. You just, you flat out can't. That's not your role anyway. And you've got to be able to defend the team and stand up for the team at the right time.
2: Line A and Dubois, they're going to be inextricably linked, I think, for the remainder of their careers, or at least, uh, you know, the next maybe five seasons or so, depending on what exactly happens. Uh, and I know the situations are different, but you were dealt one for one. Ken Linsman back in the day. Can you describe what the dynamic is like between or the relationship is between the player that you are traded for, especially when it's, you know, one for one in that regard, uh, like you were when you moved on to Boston?
3: Yeah. I didn't really know Kenny. He had been a Philadelphia flyer early in his career, but I really didn't know him. And, and it was funny because his role on the ice was the agitator. We never had an encounter on the ice. Never. Mm -hmm. And it was just unusual. And we had a lot of respect for each other. And after we were traded, we ended up skating together in the summer uh, in Boston because he lived up in the area in the off season. And we really didn't you know he, he didn't play in philadelphia much longer after that and so it really wasn't i went from a team that was going to not make the playoffs for the first time you know like i made the playoffs 13 out of 13 years i was you know very very fortunate and when i went from philadelphia to boston i went to the number one team in the league in boston so i sort of never looked back you know once i once i got there and i got settled in i was a boston Bruin, and you know and ray bork and cam neal were my teammates and and that's where i was and that's what i was going to do so I don't think we were linked the way these two will be linked. And these two will be measured for me by team success, not by individual success. I think both will have successful individual careers, but I think the merits of this trade will be where Winnipeg can go. And Winnipeg's arc will be a little bit quicker than Columbus's, I believe. I believe they're a little bit ahead of Columbus in the development of their team. Columbus today, I believe, is the youngest team in in the NHL. And and I really like what Yarmo's done, and he's he's had a couple of iterations of this. He's willing to make a big trade. I like his young group, but they're not where Winnipeg is as a team. I believe Winnipeg, you know, Winnipeg has a couple of things to work out, and they will. Um, but I think they're I, I think they're a team that can contend sooner than later.
2: So you might have just answered my next question there, but I, I you know obviously what we do with big trades is discuss who won the deal uh, and I don't think we're going to figure that out uh, for many years because it might just come down to which star decides to stay um, but I think both these teams do benefit uh, from this trade especially given the circumstances they were in I mean Pierre-Luc Dubois out, like, outwardly protesting on the ice with his performance and you're able as the, the general manager of the Columbus Blue Jackets to flip that into an asset who has a 30 goal floor 40 goal potential every year Rocket Richard's perhaps in his future. Uh, It's pretty remarkable, I think, what both teams were able to accomplish here. Uh, But because we have to have a winner, uh, I'll pose it to you like
3: this. Which player brings their team closer to a championship? Uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois initially, just because they're further along. I mean, he goes in. He doesn't go into the number one center slot even. Think about that. like He slides comfortably in the number two with a three that is a number two in Paul Stasny and now a four in Adam Lowry, who for a lot of teams might be in the two-hole. So, you know, he goes in a loaded position. He's going to have support. He's going to have one of Nick Ehlers or Kyle Connor. He's going to have one of one of those two on his line. Um, and, and don't forget that Columbus gets Jack Roslevic, too, Was a first-rounder and, and, you know, probably has top six potential. He's a Columbus, Ohio kid uh, who played at Miami of Ohio, and he wasn't even in Winnipeg. He has now signed a contract. He'll be in the Columbus Blue Jackets uniform as soon as, as that's possible. And I believe he hadn't even gone to Winnipeg, so he probably doesn't even have to quarantine. He's from yeah. Columbus. So you may see him in the lineup and, and that could be a factor in this deal as well because he's a good hockey player, you know, who wanted more on his plate. Well, he's going to get it now in Columbus. So, you know, that'll factor into the deal as well. And another thing that'll factor in is who gets their star player happier long-term from a contractual standpoint as well. Right. And the unique wrinkle in that, Justin, is that right now, that may not be possible just because of the diminishing, you know, cap numbers and, and this, and the, you know, the challenges with the pandemic and everything else, like you're, you know, you've got a group of players. Now the top players, top paid players in the NHL, if you took the top, I don't know, 15 guys, they may be the top 15 paid players three years from now. I mean, we just may not get to the back to those individual annual salary levels because of the cap. And so, Making you know, one of the two Dubois or Line A happy with their contract will be part of winning this deal as well.
2: And the advantage there might be with Columbus because they you know, might have fewer big money contracts, but there's also the built-in van- advantage for the Winnipeg Jets who are going to have Pierre-Luc Dubois for at least one more season at $5 million given yeah. the contract he signed. So a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. It's one of the more fascinating deals I think we've seen in the NHL in some time. Uh, let's move on to the North division. Uh, I'll invite you to cycle between executive Pooley, analyst Pooley, mm-hmm. whatever pool you want for the next few items. Um, but any discussion with the North division, I think has to start with the Montreal Canadians right now, mm-hmm. a team you're very close with doing color for. Uh, so let's start with this. Was this off season for Mark Bergevin even better
3: than initially advertised given what you've seen so far? Yes, it, it, it's better, but, I thought it was better than it was getting credit for to start with because, you know, in addressing the needs that they had, they just met them. They needed more size up front. Well, Josh Anderson, I think is one of the best young power forwards in the game. Um, They needed more scoring, not only Josh Anderson, but Tyler Toffoli. And then on defense, I think the lessons of playing against Pittsburgh and Philadelphia were magnified last year in the play-ins and the playoffs. Because they were really hard to play against in front of their defensive net and protected carry Price. And they went on and got more of it. Like Ben Chirot, yeah. Shea Weber, those are nasty guys. Well, they went on and got Joel Edmondson. You know, who's 6'4", he, he might be nastier. And Jeff Petrie's got a nice, nasty edge to him, I think, because he sat and watched Shea Weber do it for the last handful of years. And the young kid, Romanov, Alexander Romanov, is a handful. Like, he's, he is a handful. And Brett Kulak is settling a really nice pro player. So their defense is that much better in front of their own net picture in front of the other team's net. You already had Brennan Gallagher. And now you've got Josh Anderson who might also run you over besides, you know, causing you aggravation. And then you plug Corey Perry in on a given night. And, you know, who might say, Hey, have you ever tried this in front of the other team's net? <laughs> Cause he knows every trick
2: tricks, and tricks of the trade. So, right?
3: Exactly. And then you can't, understate the addition of Jake Allen and Jake Allen emerged in St. Louis to be maybe the perfect complement to a really good starting goalie because Jake Allen at his best was when Jordan Bennington was the starter. And that's what he's dealing with right now. So he doesn't have to relearn that role. And, and you know, he's, he's off to a really good start, but I think he's going to be really good right through that. And, and don't forget when you made the deal for Jake Allen, you made the deal. For Joel Edmondson, you had to also get contracts done, and I think Mark Bergevin contractual work this year, including getting Jeff Petrie, you know, extended. Brandon Gallagher, yeah, Brandon Gallagher extended is has been really, really good. I, I think Mark Bergevin has had an excellent summer because he addressed—he didn't just address the needs; he addressed the exact needs they had. And the only way they know those exact needs is to have stumbled like they've stumbled. And that's the part, like, you know, now you look at a team like Montreal and say, well, we want to be like Montreal. Well, Mark's been there for eight-plus years. I mean, this just mm-hmm. hasn't happened overnight. And it takes time to know what you need. He knew what he needed, and he was able to go out and get it.
2: There is an advantage, too, to signing a lot of contracts this summer. Or, yeah, you know, we talked about before the McDavid boom, signing contracts, team like the Boston Bruins, getting Brad Marchand done, mm-hmm. David Pasenak done for really reasonable deals. There's a little window here where if you sign the majority of your contracts between, I guess, 2016 and 2020, you're paying premiums. Mark Bergevin with changes this off season, obviously with the the trajectory of the salary cap, maybe getting these contracts done Gallagher maybe a little cheaper than they normally would, and that sets you up not only right now in the long run though, uh, but you're right. I think. Uh, I, I like what Montreal did in the offseason a lot. I think I like it even more now because there's the individual impact of these guys, the Josh Anderson, a Jake Allen, a Tyler Toffoli, and there's the associated impact as well. What Josh Anderson has done for Nick Suzuki and Jonathan Drouin, who looks like a different player, what Tyler Tovoli's doing for all assets, special teams, five-on-five, five, he, how he can help Kenyemi, what Jake Allen does for Carey Price, allowing him to sit, and then Joel Edmondson is you know leading plus minus with Jeff Petrie and Jeff Petrie, all he needs to be in is a a situation that favors him and he might dominate the game for uh, Montreal in his minutes. So uh, there's the impact, the individual impact, and then what it's doing for the rest of the team. I think that's a big thing for Montreal.
3: Um, And I think that's a really underrated point. I really do. Like, like if you gained Jonathan Drouin with Nick Suzuki and Josh Anderson, because you didn't really have them anywhere near the extent of what he could be. And so I think that, that extended impact is really, really critical.
2: You played for two teams with strong established identities in Philly and Boston. Do you think the Montreal Canadians established an identity with their off season? And is that part of their success this year, this
3: year so far? I think they did. I think it's not a superstar based system. It's simply not. In fact, Um, as of, you know, post six games, Nick Suzuki's played the most of any forward, slightly over 17 minutes. Nobody else has played 17 minutes. Um, every 19 players have skated for them this year. Every one of those 19 has a point. Like that's crazy. That's crazy. 16 different guys have scored goals. And, you know, the balance that that provides, and especially in what is going to be a crazily compacted season, and you haven't seen you know, the impact of it yet, you'll start to see it now, you know, you're six, eight, 10 games and you'll start to see travel impacted. But what you don't know is what the second period of a game, when a four gets overloaded does in the first period of the next game, or,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, it may not be a direct effect, but there may be effect. And you say, well, they're young guys. And well, you got some forwards that are playing 24, 25, 26 minutes a night. That's going to wear on them. I don't care how old they are um it'll have an impact at some point and 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 that'll be the challenge as we get into this and that's i think where montreal's biggest advantage is
2: do you do you subscribe to the idea that they're zigging instead of zagging in the north division and that might be to their benefit uh when all is said and done here how Or how zigging, zigging while everyone else is zagging. You mentioned how they're you're more of a balanced team, 17 minutes yeah. a night max for the stars, while everybody else is riding their horses. And, and it hasn't necessarily been, uh, you know, complete track meets, run and gun, but they're playing a different game, it seems, than the other six teams at least want to or have to play based on the way they're constructed.
3: Yeah, and I don't even think that was conscious, but but it's a good point. You know, like Winnipeg starts out of the gate. And I think Scheife will played 26 the first night. Well, yeah. you know, I've stood behind the bench, and the temptation to look down and see number 55 and not put him on the ice is, you know, is pretty severe. And if you talked to Montreal going into the year, or even last year, they were almost lamenting the fact they didn't have the star player. They, you know, Toronto had three or four of them, and. You know, Edmonton has two of the best in the world and Boston had the line and, you know, Washington had their guys and Tampa had their guys and they didn't have those impact players, but, you know, it looks like they have a couple. I, I think Nick Suzuki is going to be a first line player in the NHL in in the realm, in the sense of, a, of Patrice Bergeron, not a first line mm-hmm. center who scores 130 points, but a first line center who scores 85 points and is one of the best players in the league. So they're going to be different types of players, but but that is different from what a lot of teams are doing right now. Vancouver's pretty loaded up, up top. Um, Calgary, probably maybe the most like Montreal in terms of balance, even though Goudreau and Monahan would say otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. But they've probably got, you know, they might have the best balance. Winnipeg now might have a different type of balance. Um, so yeah, they may, they may be able to take advantage of that. And what we haven't, what we're just trying to figure out too is how taxi squads are going to impact it, how salary caps are going to impact it, how injuries are going to impact this. Um, We're just sort of, you know, treading into those waters as well right now.
2: Last one on Montreal and we can make it quick. Are they legitimate Stanley cup contenders?
3: Uh, I think so. I think so. I I think they're, they're as good a team as I've seen early in the year. Um, They have to maintain, they've got a goalie who's capable of winning. They've got another one who's, been a part of a championship tandem Um, i think they've got a defense that i I think right now the reason you'd say yes is because it looks like they can play different styles of games Um, they can create a lot of speed to the neutral zone but but they can play a more abrasive style of game because of the additions of the josh anderson's and you know in that role and more importantly for montreal i think is the fact that an archery lack Paul Byron, even a UL or Mia who've been asked to play up in the lineup are now in perfect roles for them. Like if Paul Byron and Archery Lechner are on your fourth line and killing penalties, um, you're a good team. So I, I think early on indications are they are going to be competitive right through.
2: Okay, let's hit on a couple other headlines in the North division. And if we're up against time, Dave, you can let me know at any point. Um, I think we should start in Vancouver. Um Obviously, it's been a difficult start, a big, big win. Uh, maybe I don't know if it was a statement win. It looked like a statement win on the box score, but I don't know if it was necessarily that. Uh, obviously, a big week with three games uh, at home against Ottawa. Um, but it's, it became crucial this week because of their terrible start. Uh, and I wonder if the letdown from losing Markham, Markstrom, rather, uh, losing Tanev, losing to Foley, maybe losing Levo, I guess to a division rival, Is that as much a reason for their awful start as anything? I mean, how difficult is it when you're, and I'm asking you, I guess, to put on the player hat right now, but how is it to, how difficult is it to overcome an objectively disappointing off season when you're in the room like that?
3: It's tough. You know, when you see a player walk out like a Jacob Markstrom, now what caused, what caused probably Jacob Marks from walking out was how magnificent Thatcher Demko was <laughs> in, the, right. you know, in the opportunity he got last year. And, and hey, Braden Holt, a sneaky pickup for them. He's only 31 years old. He's got a Vesna. He's got a Stanley Cup. You know, He's not way past playing. So I, I think they're going to be fine in that. Defense is where they've really been banged up. Injuries didn't help. Um, I did a game last week, and they had three defensemen who only had less than 10 games between the three of them. So you will levy. Yeah. The young Jalen Chatfield and they had um, Brogan Rafferty, you know, so Mm. those were three of the defensemen in the lineup. I think one had played five, one had played two and one had played one game in the NHL at that point. And so pretty tough to go into games with, with that thin of a lineup. Um, You know, Jordy Bennett had been out with COVID protocol. Adler was out at that point. And so they were pretty banged up. And, and then Elias Petterson just is out of sorts right now. He's not going to be, but he is. And, and he's such a significant factor. They got a big boost in, in Brandon Sutter coming back, moving him back into the center spot because he's been really banged up for three years now. You know, if he settles into a really strong third line center and then you've got Pettersson and Bo Horvat in front of him, you know, then it starts to round out a little bit. JT Miller, who's a huge, huge part of their team, missed the first three or four games with COVID protocol. So I think it just got off to a bad start. And, you know, they they won their first and then lost three in a row. And it was like, wow, where are we going? Um, And these series are going to be so cool because they then play the three-game series against Montreal. They win the first game in overtime. They get thumped in the second game. But if they win the third game, they win the series. And that's Mm -hmm. where these series are going to be so much fun. We're going to have four-game series, four games. And I think Calgary plays five out of six against a team at one point so it's really going to be fun to watch the ebbs and flows of these I think Vancouver was going to take a step back but I think it was more because I think they almost got ahead of themselves last year a little bit maybe went a little deeper last year than people thought they were ready for
2: changes expectations obviously for the upcoming season but you know maybe it sets a precedent in the minds of the players who OK, we, you know, we're, we want to take another step here, but all of a sudden we've we've lost some important players. And how does that all uh, translate into the next season? Uh, let's move on to Edmonton Oilers. Jesse pooley uh, recently promoted to the top line with Connor McDavid and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Is this a Hail Mary move from Dave Tippett, given sort of their disjointed start? Or is this something that should have happened a long time ago and this is just optimizing the Oilers roster and they should be better for it?
3: I don't think it's really either of those. I don't think it is a Hail Mary at this point, but I don't think it should have happened earlier. Um, I think, um, you know, he, he went home and he performed well in the Finnish league and he came back, I think, with a different mindset and a different attitude than he had. And, and it looks more like he's ready to absorb that. You can't just hand that position to somebody. You can't say, here, you get to play with one of the best players in the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's got to be an earned basis in the locker room. And, and and if he goes there and shows the skills, I remember a, um, a board that Craig Button had built with uh, Puyarvi and Line coming out of the World Juniors. And he was categorizing them on a five point scale. And and I think three of the six teams he had Puyarvi ahead of Line in three of the six categories. I mean, that's what this kid was. I mean, he's big, yeah. he's strong, he was everything, you know. Um, It takes time sometimes the next step you could say an arc is perfect but sometimes there's a little hitch in that arc and you don't know when it comes you don't know if it comes at 19 years old or 20 years old he's still a young guy he's big strong skates he does all the things right if he in fact can play with Nugent Hopkins and and McDavid and then Dreisaitl is left with Yamamoto who looks like a nice young player and Dominic Cahoon and two lines can produce you can even see in the if you look at their wins closely, you can see in the third period are critical points that the coach went back to play in 97 and 29 together. It's too tempting not to. And, you know, in, in the most recent win in Winnipeg, that's exactly what happened. They get together and they score a couple goals late because they're that talented. But if you can keep them apart and productive, then you're going to be that much more dangerous. Um bomb is a huge loss and you know, they've struggled in that. You know, even Mike Smith being hurt puts all the load on Koskinen and they've struggled in that.
2: You mentioned 13 seasons for you, 13 playoff appearances. So, uh, not even in your executive career were you a part of rebuilding teams. That wasn't the mandate in Toronto while you were there. Um, so, when you look at a rebuild, a teardown, and, and a an attempt to build things back up, where do you grade the Ottawa Senators' progress on where they're at and where they're going?
3: Well, crazy to say, with one win, they'd be ahead of where they're. You know, they they should be. But I just really like their young players. Um, I think they were, you know, it's funny. You end up in the three-hole. And I think they got a difference maker in Stutzla. I just do. I I think that he's got something about him that is just different. And so I think that aspect and that benefit, Brady Kachuk is the real deal. Thomas Shabbat's the real deal. And then they got a whole group of nice young players. You know, the Eric Carlson trade. That produced Chris Tierney, who's a very underrated pro, and is only I think twenty five years old. Um, You know, also produced the draft pick that brought Stutzla, and and Josh Norris. You know, who was a first rounder in San Jose, and Norris looks like he's going to be a really good player. So all the pieces are there, and and they've probably overloaded on bringing guys in to try and support those pieces. You know, eight or nine different new guys like step on and. Um, you know, guys like that, Alex L. Chaniak is involved, Paquette's involved. That was a salary cap situation. Dadenoff is a player they signed. So they probably maybe overcompensated by bringing people in to support those young guys. But they've got some really nice young players. I think they're going to be just fine. Matt Murray has to work things out in that.
2: You wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, about the influence about that Joe Thornton could have on the Maple Leafs. I wonder, uh, given your experience, how that changes, if at all, now that he's going to miss a huge portion of the schedule uh, with his broken rib, can you be an effective leader if you're not on the ice?
3: I don't think you can, Justin. Even as great a leader as Joe has been, I think you've got to play, and I think you've got to play well. Uh, you know, if you're just a guy in the locker room, you um, then you're an extended coach or an extended assistant coach. You've got to play and you've got to be able to contribute. And he showed early that he could do that. Now the injury has unfortunately, you know, knocked him out of action and how long it will be and how he comes back from that injury, you know, at his age, will be significant. Uh, it looked like it was all, it was all going in the right direction for sure. And cause he started well, but it'll remain to be seen, you know, he'll have an impact. Even in the brief time he's been there, he'll have had an impact on someone but not to the extent that he may have had it been right through.
2: Last one for you, Dave. Um, Maybe a word on George Armstrong, uh, who you cross paths with, with, I'm sure, uh, in your time with the Maple Leafs. Could you let us know what kind of a man he was and what maybe the next generation, who might not be very familiar with George Armstrong, uh, the former Maple Leafs captain, should know about him?
3: Just a special person. Just a special, special guy. I worked with him for five years. And didn't really know him coming in, obviously knew who the legend was growing up as a kid. And you know, um, knew guys that had played for him with the Marlies, knew guys that had played with him with the Leafs. And, and there were a number of people that worked with him. And I've talked to them over the last day and just the impact he had on them and the positive atmosphere that he brought, the smile he brought, the energy he brought. When he walked into our offices, you knew it. I mean, you, you didn't have to see him you could feel him coming and feel the energy he brought. So just a special, special person is the best way to put it. Pooley,
2: I'd say I'm looking forward to what's next, but at some point the plate has got to be full. Uh, <laughs> it probably is today. Uh, so I do thank you for uh, fitting me into your schedule. I really, really appreciate uh, you coming up.
3: More than welcome, Justin. Good luck with
0: everything.